1: And welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Ore Ogumbi.
2: And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
1: For decades, Britain has had a reputation for being a world leader in administering foreign aid. But budget cuts and a recent change in the government arm in charge of it means that the world's poorest aren't getting what they're used to.
2: And you might think that with the transition to electric vehicles, the roads might become a little quieter. Not so. Carmakers are in a sonic battle to assert their battery-powered brands, prepare for new bleeps, bongs, and guitar licks. First up, though, One year ago today, President Joe Biden bragged that some new legislation called the Chips and Science Act would usher in a new era of American manufacturing. Today is a day for builders. Today, America is delivering, delivering. With the promise of billions of dollars in subsidies and tax credits, the world's chip makers would be lured to America to build their high-tech plants, known as fabs. Standing on the White House lawn, he set expectations high, predicting that 100 years in the future... People who will look back on this week, they'll know that we met this moment. At the moment, America wants to weaken reliance on Asian supply chains. And it isn't alone. Yesterday, the world's largest chipmaker, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, or TSMC, announced plans to build a fab in Germany. It'll be the first of its kind in Europe, and Germany's government will shell out as much as 5 billion euros to help it along. It's clear that Western governments want to secure crucial chip supplies by making them at home. But one year into America's new
3: microprocessor policy, how much has changed? Since the beginning of last year, a lot of chip manufacturing companies have announced plans to build fabrication plants in the U.S., Shailesh Chitnis writes about business for The Economist. If you think about the semiconductor supply chain, usually U.S. is the place where people design chips, and then in Asia is where you manufacture and assemble those chips. And so the fact that for the first time you have some pretty serious capacity that is now being built up in the U.S., that is something very new.
2: And that, in fact, is exactly what the Chips Act was all about. How has it been going so far?
3: Actually, the progress has been quite good. When you consider the fact that U.S. didn't have any leading-edge chips, and when we talk about leading-edge, what we mean is chips that consist of transistors that are 3 nanometers or less, which is the size of a, of the smallest transistor in a chip, U.S. didn't have any fabrication plants that were uh, considered leading-edge. And at this point in time, pretty much all the leading-edge fabs are located in Asia, basically in Taiwan, which is where TSMC is based. If you project out to 2025... U.S. is going to have something like 18% of the world's leading-edge capacity, which is pretty phenomenal growth when you consider where they started out from. It's still a long way to go, but it started out well.
2: And so everything is, is set then for the CHIPS Act to do what it was designed to do. This will be straightforward to implement in America.
3: Not exactly. If you think about building a fabrication plant, especially a leading-edge fabrication plant, it's a pretty complex undertaking. And now when you think about building fabs in the U.S., they take longer to build. They're also smaller. And they're costlier. So when you combine each of these facts, it makes the task a lot more challenging.
2: Why is it uh, longer, more difficult, costlier in America in particular?
3: There have been studies that says that to build a new fab in China or Taiwan, for example, it takes approximately two years. The similar figure in the U.S. has been estimated to be around 900 days. A big chunk of that is because the environmental regulations, state and local regulations, they put a lot more burden on the company. And that actually lengthens the construction time. We don't know exactly how long it's going to take because this is the first time companies are going to build out a leading-edge fab in the U.S. It could take anywhere between two to three years here. So, for example, TSMC, which is building two leading-edge fabs in Arizona, they've already announced the fab is going to be delayed from 2024 to 2025. So, almost a year behind schedule. And they pointed out both cost overruns as well as the fact that they're having difficulty in sourcing labor skilled as well as folks that are experienced in the semiconductor industry. They're having difficulty in sourcing them in Arizona.
2: So both cost overruns and labor issues in that Arizona case, and that may affect the whole national effort?
3: So I think when you think about constructing a fab, particularly in the U.S., there are two components that go into building it, which is first the construction itself. And here you're talking about building a giant shell. Just to give you some context, a leading edge fab is roughly around 58,000 square meters. That's more than the size of 10 football fields put together. And inside that shell, you have what are called clean rooms with some very expensive equipment. And so the combination of both the construction and the equipment is I would say 80 to 90% of the cost of constructing a fab. Now, if you think about the equipment itself, that cost is the same whether you build a fab in the US or you build it in Taiwan. And so the major difference in price comes in the cost of the construction itself. And US has higher labor cost. It's been estimated to be between 30 to 40%. And so the overall construction cost is roughly 30 to 40% more expensive. So that's one part of it. The second part is once you've built the fab, you need to operate it. And there, again, the operating costs are estimated to be between 30 to 35% more than a similar fab in Taiwan. You're painting
2: a picture where it's going to be hard then for the American industry to get an edge over the Asian industry, which is the whole point here, isn't it?
3: There are two parts to the CHIPS Act. So the first is to actually bring back, so to speak, manufacturing, high-end manufacturing, semiconductor manufacturing back into the U.S. So in that sense, Yes that has worked, whether the companies are Samsung, Taiwan, or Intel, which is a homegrown champion, they are actually building fabs in the U.S. The second part, which is extending America's lead in kind of the semiconductor manufacturing race, that is going to be a lot harder because when you think about it, uh, the company that still has the most advanced technology in this space is TSMC. And TSMC is not putting down their most advanced fab in Arizona. That is actually happening back in Taiwan. So from that sense, it's going to be a lot more difficult to close the gap. We should, of course, not forget Intel, because when we talk about semiconductor manufacturing, we keep talking about TSMC. Intel has made some pretty bold promises where they're going to essentially leapfrog almost four nodes, which is a technology generation in semiconductor manufacturing. They're going to leapfrog four nodes in five years. But that is a big leap of faith, and nobody knows how that's going to turn out.
2: You mean they're going to move to making much smaller transistor sizes much faster than
3: we've seen before? Exactly. So to give you a sense of numbers, the most advanced right now is something in three nanometers technology, which is in Taiwan. The plant that is being built in Ohio is 18 angstrom, which is 1.8 nanometers. That should give you a sense of the leap that Intel is trying to make as it goes about this.
2: And so that's where the real race is for America then to get the smallest transistors, what amounts to the fastest chips?
3: So that is where most of the investment money is flowing. And certainly that's where uh, the most interest is from the policymakers. But let us not forget that the semiconductor chain is actually quite complex. Chips both at the lower end, which is called leading edge, and then the bigger chips, which is called trailing edge, they are equally important. And chips at the trailing edge are actually used in things like automotive, your toasters, basically your everyday appliances that are really needed to keep the economy growing. And investment there is also important. And this is where something interesting has been happening. China has essentially been cut off from building any leading edge capacity because of restrictions on exports of advanced technology. And in lieu of that, what they're doing is they're investing heavily on the trailing edge. Now, over the next three to four years, analysts project that capacity in the trailing edge is going to really shoot up and it's going to create a glut. And China goes from something like a fifth of capacity to almost a third of the capacity in in only three to four years. So that's a big jump that they're making. If China corners this market, essentially they would have control over the market in terms of setting the price. Traditionally, when you've seen what has gone back in the past with, uh, for example, solar, they were accused of dumping a lot of capacity onto the open market to drive the prices down. That could also happen here. In its most recent earnings call, NXP, which is a Dutch semiconductor, which plays very heavily in the trailing edge market, they've already been complaining about excess buildup of inventory on that side of the market.
2: So clearly there are some challenges for America and apparently some unintended consequences of the CHIPS Act so far. How do you see the long-term version of this playing out?
3: I think we need to be realistic about the long-term. So far, the program has started out well. The investments that have been announced, I think, have been beyond expectations that people would have said a year before this. But even if everything goes to plan, the U.S. capacity for leading edge would only be a fifth of what the overall market needs. And from that perspective, if you think about a company like Apple, which is one of TSMC's biggest customers, Apple currently sources all of its leading edge chips from Taiwan. The fabs in Arizona are much smaller than the ones back home in Taiwan, to give you a sense of the scale, each fab in Arizona roughly produces 25,000 wafers per month, and there are two of those. So the capacity would be 50,000 wafers a month for TSMC. Back home in Taiwan, TSMC operates what are called gigafabs, where each fab has at least a capacity of 100,000 wafers, and they have four of such fabs. So again, when you look at the sheer numbers, the volumes that are going to be coming out of leading-edge fabs in America are going to be much, much smaller than what is produced in Taiwan.
2: Shalash, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. This week on Checks and Balance, our show about American politics, my colleagues discuss how parts of the CHIPS Act and other big infrastructure bills are explicitly designed to help America's struggling former industrial heartlands. Look for Checks and Balance this and every Friday, wherever fine podcasts are sold and traded.
1: Britain spends lots on foreign aid. Last year, it set aside $15.7 billion. That puts it behind only America, France, Germany and Japan for how much it gave away. It also had a reputation of being among the best at getting aid to those who needed it the most. But recently, Britain merged its diplomatic service and international development staff into a new government department called the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, or the FCDO for short. And that has brought about a significant change in who receives Britain's aid and just how much they get.
4: So the Department for International Development, DFID, which doled out aid for Britain, was long considered one of the most efficient parts of government and a completely model aid agency.
1: Avantika Chilcotti is an international reporter at The Economist.
4: In 2020, Boris Johnson announced that he was going to merge the department with the Foreign Office. Among civil servants, it came as somewhat of a surprise, and it was a huge change to how Britain deals with the
1: rest of the world. And why did Britain decide to merge these two departments?
4: It's a great question. And I think we should frame it as why did Boris Johnson as prime minister decide to merge these departments? Because this decision was taken in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic without him consulting the cabinet. And so this was very much the decision of one man. It's much more about personal politics than it is about practical policymaking. So the right wing of the Conservative Party has long been against aid spending. It's seen as wasteful. It's seen as wokeism. And, you know, there's, there's something the tabloid press in the UK really pushes. And it was very widely seen as a gutting of Britain's aid agency by the prime minister in order to speak to this part of the electorate. When he announced the merger, for example, he referred to DFID as a giant cash point in the sky that was handing out money without any reference to Britain's national interests. So it was very much seen as a way of deprioritising aid.
1: And did Boris Johnson's plan work? I mean, Avantika, what's your take on this whole merger?
4: Look, there is a reason that is really fair to merge a foreign ministry, and an aid agency. And you can say, you know, post-Brexit, Britain's role in the world needs to be rethought. And this gives a smaller power, a greater, more unified voice overseas. So my general view is there is some logic to merging these two agencies. The trouble is how it was done. So I told you a little bit about how this decision was announced. It was also followed very quickly by a decision to Reduce the aid budget. So a few years ago, Britain committed to spending 0.7% of gross national income of GNI on aid. And in the middle of the pandemic, under Boris Johnson, the UK government decided we're only going to spend about 0.5% for a while because public finances are under pressure. So what we're seeing now is really a combination of two decisions. It is one chaos in a department that was very quickly merged. And then there is a massive deprioritisation of aid because of these budget cuts.
1: So how do we determine the outcome and the consequences of those two big changes?
4: If you want to evaluate the decision, you have to look at two things. One, how are we doing on foreign policy? And two, how are we doing on aid? If DFID was always a very strong tool for soft power for Britain overseas, this has been hugely damaging. In terms of aid there's far more quantitative proof that this has been damaging. So we have an agency in the UK government that is focused on evaluating our aid spending. It's called the Independent Commission for Aid Impact. They say, you know what, there was good enough coordination between the Foreign Office and the aid agency before the merger. They say that transparency has fallen in the new department, what's called the FCDO, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, we're also giving less and less money to the parts of the world that are poorest. So when it comes to both foreign policy and when it comes to aid, it is not clear we're doing any of those things better three years on from the merger. And at the same time, you see the FCDO's control of the aid budget falling. And this is incredibly important.
1: But how is it losing control of that aid budget? And what happens to the money it used to control?
4: In 2014, DFID controlled about... 86% of Britain's overseas development assistance Today, the FCDO controls just 60%. Almost 30% of what Britain calls aid is being spent essentially on looking after refugees within Britain. And it's a very, very sort of elastic definition of what aid is, but that is not going to poor people overseas. What does this change mean for them? So we had a new report out It's an internal assessment by civil servants about the number of lives that are being lost, specifically because of the aid cuts. For example, they say almost 200,000 more women around the world will face unsafe abortions. They talk about Yemen, South Sudan, Afghanistan specifically. And there's shocking numbers of malnutrition going up, of people not receiving health care. And we have to be clear, you know, this is to do with the Budget cuts, which happened alongside this merger. And, you know, to be fair to the people within the department, you know, these are civil servants who really care. They care about Britain's image overseas, they care about aid and helping the needy abroad. And you have this sense from them of them saying, you know, in the last year, things have started to turn around a little bit. The agency says this merger was going to be difficult, but hopefully things are settling down now, which for me, is more of a case of saying, you know, if we do get a Labour government coming in next year or soon, ripping these two agencies apart again is definitely not the answer. But more broadly, it just looks like Britain's stepping away from the world. When we have this sort of now tired phrase of global Britain versus little England, it seems like that little England identity is moving up and up the scale. And It's going to be very difficult for Britain to claw back this reputation the country had as being a model in the world of aid.
1: Avantika, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Aure.
5: Soundtrack to motoring used to be created by the vroom of the petrol engine and the blaring car radio as you were driving down the road.
2: Simon Wright is The Economist's industry editor.
5: But now electric cars, they're nearly silent. batteries don't make a great deal of noise, nor does the electric engine. And that means car makers are left with an aural void that they seem only too happy to fill. So how are they
2: filling that aural void?
5: Look, for a long time, car makers have artificially boosted the sound of their petrol engines. McLaren is a great example. Their first sports cars didn't seem quite raucous enough for their buyers, so they tuned it so that inside the cabin it sounded a little bit more racy. But what EVs are doing is they're completely generating artificial sounds of fake petrol engines. The difference now is instead of just generating for the cabin, they're inflicting the cacophony on the outside world. And one example of this is the Fiat 500e, the uh, souped-up version of Fiat's popular little city car. It was launched last year with speakers in the bumper that mimic the sound of the petrol engine in the petrol engine version of the car.
2: Sync with the roars and kicks from Ionic 5N. The
5: hot hatch version of Hyundai's Ionic 5, the Ionic 5N, which is going to go on sale later this year, goes one better. As well as broadcasting car noises to the outside world, it can also screech like a jet engine. And for added driver feedback, it's even adding a little bit of a sort of jolt between the fake gear changes.
2: So it seems like some of these sounds are really just to impress the drivers, or the drivers, I guess, are impressing the public with them, right?
5: Yeah, these sounds for the outside world are sort of showy. They're for the driver to feel like they're in a racy sports car, and also to project that to the outside world, as some drivers have always wished to do. But there's a functional use, too, look, regulators in Europe and America insist that EVs emit noises to warn the public that they're coming. Pedestrians need to know that there's an EV on their tail. The 500E's warning sound is, in fact, a strumming guitar.
2: I mean, it's not clear to me why that is a sound of warning of an approaching car. It sounds more like a follow me to the worst party ever, but presumably other makers are messing around with unconventional sounds here.
5: Look, you're quite right. They're still sort of experimenting with these sounds, and the reason is... The experience of driving is what's going to be much more important for brand differentiation in the future. And that experience is partly going to be defined by the sort of bings and bongs and the music you hear in the car. Renault, for example, says that their sounds will underline a singular identity. And car companies have enlisted noted musicians. A video recently posted on Renault's website highlights its collaboration with Jean-Michel Jarre, who is a pioneer of electronic music, and Renault's not the only one. In 2019, BMW engaged Hans Zimmer, who is better known for his Oscar-winning film scores, as its resident composer. Luckily for motorists who are welcoming the peace and quiet of the EV age, most of these options come with an off switch.
2: Simon, thanks very much for joining us.
5: Thank you, Jason.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. We've got some news for you if you're a subscriber. The Economist's app now has a dedicated tab for this show and for all our podcasts. It's the easiest way to tune in every single day.
2: And if you're not a subscriber, check out the special offer we've got at the moment, a free 30-day digital subscription. Just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer or click the link in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.